Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. You're listening to She Said, She Said. different today. We're actually recording a series of conversations about women in power, women as role models, and women as they're depicted in film. In this three-part series, we'll be talking to Colleen Griffin, the producer of a political thriller called An Acceptable Loss, starring Jamie Lee Curtis and Tika Sumter. We're also talking to former Congresswoman Barbara Comstock and A.B. Stoddard from Real Clear Politics. Each of these women brings tremendous knowledge, experience, and expertise to the topic of women in power. Women as role models, even when sometimes those role models may be morally or ethically challenged, and women in film in particular, and how all of these themes ultimately intersect. We're talking about women both in front of the camera as well as those who are behind the scenes raising the money to make interesting movies happen. A big thanks to the producers of An Acceptable Loss, Corrado Mooncoin, Colleen Griffin and Joe Chappelle, and Candy Strait for their support of She Said, She Said, and for helping to make this series of conversations possible. We are also greatly appreciative of their support overall for thinking more broadly about women leading and having an impact and willing to challenge, in many cases, the status quo. Colleen Griffin is here with me today. She is the producer of the movie An Acceptable Loss. Colleen, welcome to She Said, She Said. Oh, thank you so much, Laura. Happy to be here. Really happy to have you. I loved the movie, found it very interesting, found myself challenged by it. We don't want to give away everything that happens in the movie. So let's start this conversation by talking about why was it important to cast women in the two lead roles? Full disclosure, the director-writer is my husband, and it's something that we, Joe and I, Joe Chappelle and I, have done since we started making films. Um, In 1993, we made our first film, and we've always looked at roles through the lens of could this be a man? Could this be a woman? Could this be, you know, what what's, what ethnicity? Just what kind of diversity can you bring to a role? We see a world that looks like the world that we move through, which is not an all-white world or an all-male world or an all-female world. But specifically with an acceptable loss, Joe was inspired by um, two movies called uh, The Known Unknown and The Fog of War. One profiled Robert McNamara, and one profiled Donald Rumsfeld. And he really liked the idea of these two characters, one who looked back on something that they had done in the past around um, U.S. military and was filled with regret, Robert McNamara, and someone else who looked back and said, I'd do it all over again the exact same way. No, you know, no rear view, no second guessing or anything like that, Donald Rumsfeld. So he said, let's take, um, let's put those two characters on the opposite side of the of a shared military situation without giving too much away Mm -hmm. and he kind of pitched me the story and I said to him could they be women instead of men because we've seen that we've seen two men on the 
opposite sides of an important issue in films before. Endlessly. Endlessly. Right? Over and over. I, I'm not quite sure about this, and I'm sure your listeners can tell us if, but I think this may be the only film political thriller ever made with two women that are one woman is the protagonist and one woman is the antagonist. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that, to me, that's remarkable. That's unusual. And it it's not part of their character, actually. We could have cast men in these roles, but I think it representational is so critical to see even flawed characters, even nuanced, complex characters, to see them on the screen is very important. How do you think it would have been different had they been men? Sadly, I was talking to someone uh, that is a man in the business, and when we um, opened, IFC opened the film in January and theatrically, and we opened in about 30 theaters, and I said, you know, I was shaking my head, because I do think it's a very good movie, and I'm very proud of it. I said, you know, if we had had, like, Ethan Hawke and Cuba Gooding Jr. in those two roles, I think I would we would have opened in 3,000 theaters. And he looked at me and he goes, I can get you Ethan Hawke. And I'm like, uh, you're kind of missing the point. But I do think there's this perception that women cannot carry a movie um, of this nature and maybe this caliber. Uh, I also think that in terms of how would it have been different, I think it just wouldn't have raised as many of the issues that it raises. I mean, some people, um, just to see a woman who is a strong person dealing with a maybe an ugly slice of what the world, what happens on the world stage, I think, and, and handling it with regret or with that same idea of I'd do it all over again. I'm happy with what, the, what choice I made, I think is an interesting polemic. Yeah. It really is an interesting dilemma and, frankly, rather surprising in this day and age that you don't see more attempts to be a bit more provocative, as it were, Right. Because we have not in the United States had a woman as president as of yet. Um, there's a number of women who are running on the Democratic side, as you know. There is a significant insurgence in the number of women who were just elected in the last election cycle. And it, that is significant in and of itself. But it's also significant because many of those women were women of color. They were all but one on the Democratic side of the aisle. Um, nevertheless, it does increase those numbers. And from your perspective, as you think about the broader landscape and the evolution of that landscape, do you think it changes how people think about the possibilities of seeing women in these roles, in this particular case in the movie, with the vice president who becomes president and the national security advisor? Sort of this notion of life imitating art, art imitating Absolutely. life. And yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the Gina Davis I'm going to say the her organization, but their tagline of it is, um, if she sees it, she can be it. Yeah. And they, a lot of their push is in the STEM area. So, you know, they want to see women scientists. They want to see, you know, hidden figures and shows where movies where you might see a woman, you know, fig figuring out the math problem or solving the scientific riddle or something like that. But anything where um, the woman who was our executive producer, Candy Strait, she did executive produced a movie uh, called Equity that Anna Gunn is in that showed women in the high reaches of Wall Street. And they wanted to be involved in that movie. They wanted to help finance that movie because they wanted to see, they wanted people to see women doing those things, you know, making these big corporate deals, you know, moving money around. And, and I think that that's sort of the same thing that that's why she got involved in this movie is because she wants to see 
women doing these things and see have people see that. Yeah. You mentioned uh, Gina Davis's project, mm-hmm. and I know part of her focus is on doing some really simple things. When you get ready to make a movie, she gives sort of a laundry list of a few things. Talk a little bit about that and how you think about some of those suggestions, because I know you incorporated a lot of that thinking in what you did here. Ironically, we weren't really aware of them before, Mm. but we just sort of fit into them. Her two big suggestions are, if you're writing a script and you write a crowd scene, add the sentence fragment made up of 50% women and 50% men. And then look at every role you have and see if your Richard could be a Rachel or if your Jonathan could be a Joan. And that's that's something that we, like I said, we've organically done that every time uh, we've made a film. Because I think that that's one of the reasons why it's fun to do independent films. Because you don't have a studio, you don't have financial people that are saying, well, you know, that 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 actor doesn't really play very well overseas. Let's get that actor so that you can go have an audition session and you can go, who is the best person for this role? And really cherry pick your cast. And and it, it can be any variety. Mm-hmm. And that's fun. Talk a little bit more about the role that the studio plays in making films and how sort of you're thinking about this from the independent film standpoint. The way I think about making films in general is that film is one of the uh, art forms that requires money to make it happen. Yes, you can shoot your film on an iPad. Yes, you can buy an inexpensive camera and shoot it. But to make like a big, like a, a movie that looks like ours, you need expensive equipment and you have to pay actors money, you have to pay directors money, and it costs money. So with that comes a, a portion of that is risk management. And so Hollywood sort of looks at a movie and they want to see, does is this have a track record? So is it from a book that was a bestseller? Is Are you going to cast this actress or this actor that has a following? Sometimes I've seen lately people get cast just on how many Twitter followers they have. So they, they want a security, they want in some type of insurance policy, even though there never is really. You can make a very small movie that can be successful and you can make a very big movie that is not successful. But I I think that women being involved are just, I don't know that they would be, I th- I'm sure there's a lot, I mean, my husband is, is on board with this. Lots and lots of people are on board with this. I just think that if you get women, more women involved, you're going to have more, you, the variety of the types of stories that you tell are going to be different. You're going to have you're just going to sort of some of the business aspects of it are just going to be a little bit different in the way that you think about what is a successful movie. Is a successful movie just an Avengers that makes $1.2 billion at the box office? Or is it possibly, is our movie a success, even though it didn't make nearly that, just because it makes people think? Right. It makes people go, oh, that's really interesting, you know, well, what would I do in that situation? Or how it, you know, or what's going to happen after that? Or why did that happen? Or could that happen? Those kinds of things I think are really important. And that is the one of the roles that art plays, I think, in our world. Yeah. Colleen, how did you get into this business? Well, I um, got an undergraduate degree from Washington University in St. Louis in theater. And I was pretty sure I didn't want to work in theater because you have to work every night and every weekend. And I wasn't about that. 
So then I um, moved into film and I went, got my MFA from fil- in film from Northwestern University and that's where I met my husband. And then we went into ar- advertising because we, didn't, we were not interested in being starving artists. But then over at night and on weekends we would write um, projects, we'd do shorts, and after about seven years, we made our first independent film, and I think it was 19, we shot it in 1992, um, and it opened in New York in 1993. And then we just, and then Joe, my husband, kind of went off and did, like, TV shows and other movies, and we had kids. Mm-hmm. We we felt like one of us had to stay home and raise kids if we were going to have a far-flung spouse. So I did that. And then in 2012... Joe came home to do work on a TV show in Chicago. We live in Chicago. And um, I hadn't done anything since 2006. And I decided that there was enough time, the kids were older, I could do my own project. So I directed and wrote my first feature at 53 called The Cold and the Quiet. And it got a little festival buzz. And I really enjoyed it. It was very small budget, but I just enjoyed the process. And then I made a web series called Boy Band, which was polar opposite, just silly and campy and fun. And I also really enjoyed that. And Joe got, he kind of watched me get to do something where I had complete creative control. I got to pick even like what colors people wore and what locations we shot at. And he's worked in a field for years where he's had to, not had to, but he's collaborating and executing other people's visions. So he wanted to see, and we had so much fun when we did the first movie, Thieves Quartet, that we wanted to try to do it again, and that's when we decided, let's do it, let's make an acceptable loss, and we did. How, for a lot of women, and we talk about this a lot on the podcast, it can be really challenging when you jump off the career track to stay home and raise your kids, to do all these other things, to invest in your you know, collective lives together in a different way, then when they are semi-launched or sort of capable of kind of taking care of themselves, you decide to get back in, it can be really, really difficult. What was that like for you? It's really challenging, and I have to be honest with you, I don't know that I, even though I made this movie, I don't know that I'm going to be able to um, make another one, or or if I am perceived as a, there. I think that there's a little bit of a perception that I made this kind of on the coattails of Joe with his established career. I think in, in the film business particularly, it's very hard because it's a business that sort of caters to young and fresh and the hot new thing. And I'm, you know, I like myself and everything, but I'm not young and fresh and the hot new thing. So um, experience is important in Hollywood, but maybe not as expor- as important as, like, coolness. Um, but I am excited now because there is a very strong push towards, you know, um, diversity hire to getting more women behind the you know as directors but one thing um, we're you know that I think is really interesting is that our film even though 87% of the investors are women large part of our cast not all of it but a large not just the two leads the you know some of the voiceovers some of the minor characters are women I am a woman the so the producer is a woman the cinematographer is a woman which I think three percent of movies are shot by women we were not even by anyone considered a woman's film because our director was a man our director writer was a man and that was disappointing to me because I was like well you know if if you know what a producer does a producer is the one that gets the ball going and then stays with it and then I'm still working on it where he's gone off and done other projects 
and I'm still sort of nurturing, you know, our little baby along. And so I think that is an interesting dynamic, but some of it's just from people not really understanding exactly how the business works. Right. I mean, you're essentially the business arm of the movie, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you're running the business piece, which in and of itself, if you think about that in any other context, would be a little surprising to people. Yeah. Right? Well, I think, I feel like, my, I've always felt like my job, I'm, I'm mostly probably considered a creative producer, and I feel like my job is to create a safe space for artists to do their best work. Now that means, you know, getting them the right amount of money, getting the right um, people together, getting the right spaces together, the tools, all of the things that they have. But then on this film, I also wore the hat of, I raised a lot of the money, and, but then I also, after we finished it, helped with marketing and stuff like that. So this is part of an in- independent film where you're just, you're, you're, you see it all the way through. It's kind of like being a mom, you know, you you, they don't. They never leave you. You just. I'll be working on this for twenty years from now. When our, this distribution deal ends, I'll have to make another distribution deal, and we'll still be working on it. You know. I. You know. Again, I'm sensitive to not giving too much of the movie away, um, but it's it's interesting the 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 two lead characters and a lot of the themes that we talk about on this podcast with the various women who come through. Perfection is a big one. Imposter syndrome is a big one. Um, Fear, fear of failure, what you do when you're afraid that you're going to fail. A lot of these themes which you can assume are kind of an underlayer of what they may be thinking, but but talk a little bit about how you see the two characters and some of these fundamental themes that I think women may struggle with a bit more than men sometimes. I don't know about the imposter, but I feel like um, we had a discussion last spring and a couple of the comments that the panelists made there really struck me. So um, one woman talked about being a woman of color in a political situation and being a number two or being a deputy to someone that's very powerful. So her comments were, because obviously I haven't been in that situation, but her perspective was that if you are a woman in politics, you have to be a shiny penny. And if you're a woman of color in politics, you have to be a bright, shiny penny. And you lit, you have to be there, you know, a half an hour early, stay half an hour late. You can't mess up. It's just the pressure is enormous. And then the second thing that she related is how much pressure there is to bear to get you to a yes. Whatever your analysis is, whatever your data you bring to the table, whatever your statistics, whatever your observations, your experience, your interviews with people, whatever that tells you, they want the yes, they want the answer that they want, and they're going to bring an enormous amount of pressure to bear on you to get, to bring that answer to yes. So that was one, I thought, interesting perspective. Another thing I thought was really fun is they talked about the idea of Heat. Heat. Yeah. So you're in a meeting and everybody's sitting around because there's a room. I, I don't think that I'll give too much away. There's a scene in the situation room and there are people sitting around the table talking about something, and a woman makes a suggestion or says something, and then and no one really says anything. And then five minutes later, a man says basically the exact same thing. Right. And they call that a heat. So <laughs> I've never. I'm certainly familiar with the phenomenon. Wasn't familiar with the terminology. I know. I like that. I thought that was a really a fun. I like it. So, 
Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's <laughs> those are two things that were brought up from women in politics. Yeah, well, I, I think the shiny penny piece certainly resonates and certainly in fields like politics that is still largely male-dominated, um, certainly even more so on one side of the aisle than the other, unfortunately. So, it, you know, it, it certainly is a topic that resonates. Yeah, another thing that um, it, we we don't have to go into this, but one of the one of the other women I ta- women women I talked about this said that you know she's retired from politics now, but when she started, there was about nine percent of the elected officials were women, and when we had this panel, which was before the 2016-11, I think it was up to sixteen yeah. percent, and she had started a pact, um, and she's a Republican, and she was like, I don't care, Republican, Independent, Democrat, I just want more women in. Because her perspective was that um, women get things done. And I think, again, going not to go back, because not all women are mothers, but women get together in collaborative ways to solve problems. And I think that's something that we are sorely lacking right. now, you know, that ability to say, okay, you feel that way, you feel that way, and now let's figure out a way that we can both be happy about you know, maybe a little unhappy, but both be generally happy about what steps we're going to take to solve the problem. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, what have we not hit on here? Um, we did not talk about executive producer, producer, if you want to talk about Let's talk about that. that, yeah. So you are, Colleen, you are the producer of this movie. Let's talk about what's involved in that role. For those of us who are not in a creative field, um, don't have any experience with filmmaking, what does that really mean? Well, I know a lot of people get confused because they'll look at a movie and they'll see like 11 executive producers and five producers and a co-producer here and there. On our movie, I think we have a whole bunch of co-producers. So really, sometimes the um, credits are honorific so or just a part of a deal. So you might have a TV show where an actor gets, their agent gets the credit of an executive producer because they brought the person to the project. They never step foot on set. They never really, I don't mean this pejoratively, but they don't meaningfully contribute to the making of the television show. They just brought a piece of the package together. Um, Generally, what you think of when you think of an executive producer is someone who makes the deals either by putting the package together, bringing bringing big players together, or bringing in the money. On our film, our executive producers were largely people that brought in money. Mm -hmm. Um, I probably could have gotten an executive producer, but I'm also someone who thinks, like, let's just give everybody one credit. People don't need to have 20 credits on a movie. As a producer, what I do is it's similar to the same skill set as a big party planner. So you've got to figure out, okay, this is how many people I need in this scene. This is the location I need. These are the table linens I need. These are the flowers I need, like props and wardrobe and stuff like that. And you have to get it all together. You help with the schedule. It's it's very hands-on kind of managing all the different people. But, you know, there's 200 people on a movie set, and there's department heads that are in charge of each of those things. So you've got to figure all that. And, and they'll come to you and they'll say, well, you gave me $100,000 to do this, and I need 200000 And in a studio situation, you might be, be able to go back to 
NBC or Universal or something like that and say, look, if you want this scene with all these bells and whistles, we need another $200,000. We don't, in independent film, we don't have that situation. Mm. The money we have is the money we have. And sometimes we don't even have enough money to even do what we said we're going to do because you're raising money as you shoot. But you're actually setting the budget, too. So oh, absolutely. It, it really is the business right. behind that, right. the ra- setting the budget, raising the money, figuring right. out how you're going to allocate right. that. And then, and then there's always a excuse me. There's always a yin yang between the create, the directing, the writer, the art director, the production designer, the cinematographer, because they're going to always ask for more, and that's part of their job too. And there's times when you're going to have to come in and say, "No, this location costs eight thousand dollars an hour. We cannot go into overtime on this location. You want to go over into overtime on this location that we own for a week? Maybe we can talk about that. But you know, you have to sort of be the bad guy." bad guy a lot of times producers are thought as the enemy of production because they're the one that has to say no so we've talked a little bit about your husband joe Mm -hmm. he's your partner in life and your partner on a number of different projects what is your advice you guys have been married for more than 20 years we've been married for 32 years 32 years what's your secret to making that partnership work when it goes from sort of the personal into the professional we really like each other we really spect we have very shared vision of what we believe a product a project should look like like how it should unfold and the same thing with our family like we the things that we're committed to and we care about are very similar but I also think that we are both giving in that I did not expect when I married this very shy quiet person that he was going to be gone for mo- you know Sunday night to Saturday morning for 15 years of our life, and I was basically going to be like a single mom. It never occurred to us that he would direct TV shows because he was more of a movie guy. And I thought that I would work more than I did. So that didn't occur to us, and we just kind of took it, and every time we came to a decision, we were like, okay, what, what will work best for the family and I do think that there were times when I had to take a back seat. And I, I'm sure I feel like there's some resentment because of that. But ultimately, it's like, just like we would look at a movie and go like, okay, what's going to be the best thing? What, how are we going to see the most on the screen? How are we going to get the biggest bang for our bucks? I think we sort of look at that in our personal life. If Okay, if you take this job, Joe, and then I have to do that and bring the kids out there and then how is it going to be the best thing for our family? That's part of the reason why we live in Chicago, because I didn't want to move to L.A. and raise kids in Los Angeles. I wanted to raise kids away from the industry and not move them to Vancouver, Baltimore, Los Angeles, all these different places that he worked. So that was a challenge for him because he had to come home a lot, challenge for me because he was gone a lot. When you think about impact Mm -hmm. and the impact that you want to have had, with these various projects, whether it's an acceptable loss or some of the others that you have worked on or the others that are that are coming. What do you want that impact to be? Well, I'd really like to see, right now I'm working on a project called Into the Empty, which is about the opioid crisis, and I have a young female writer who's playing the lead and a young female director. And I, I it's sort of an incubation situation, and I'd like to see more, um, see that kind of an impact and see... Joe is a very nice person. I'm a very nice person. In Hollywood, there are unfortunately a lot of people that are not very nice and are not all of them because there's 
an awful lot of very hardworking cast and crew that are really good, hardworking people, but there's a slice of the industry that is very financially driven, image driven, and I'd like to see just more, um, a greater sense of respecting everyone's work from, you know, I, I like to look at how not, I wouldn't hire a director necessarily based on how they treat the actors or how they get along with the actors. I'd look and watch and see how they treat the production assistants and see just, um, there's a movement in production by Haskell Wexler that's 12, it's called 12 on, 12 off, where they, you work for 12 hours, you have 12 hours off because film hours can be really long. I think things like that where it's just sort of kind of the mom in me, I put that mom producer hat where it's like, what's healthy? What's healthy life work balance? Sometimes films can just sort of overwhelm people's lives and um, it's not, that's not what life is about. And so I think just to bring a little bit more quality of life and maybe honor to the business, if that doesn't sound too hokey. Yeah. Do you think you think about that differently because you are a woman and because of your experience as a mother? Yeah, because I literally will think about a production assistant driving home after 16 hours and go, is this kid going to drive off the road? Is this like, is this? And I'm not saying men don't think about that, but I just think that I do think I'm particularly wired a little bit differently where I'm going to look at someone and if they look like they're flagging, I'm going to go, what's, what's this person need? Is there some, is there another way that we can do this that isn't so draining, that isn't so, but, but I don't know, cause I've had men and women tell me, well, you know, they got to put their time in, they got to, you know, and I'm like, well, yeah, they got to put their time in, but they don't need to work for free for two years or work for really cheap for two years at ridiculous hours in sort of soul-sucking situation to prove that they want to be in this business. I mean, that's kind of a high bar, I think. Yeah. We ask everybody who comes on the podcast for a single piece of advice, a life hack, a mantra. could be something you wish you had known when you were getting started or something that you share regularly with your kids. What would yours be? Well, for filmmakers particularly, but I think this could apply in other areas of life. What I usually say to people when, if they come to me and they want to ask me advice about how to make a film, I ask them about the story. What is the project that they want to do? And I ask them to answer three questions. Is this a passion story that you have to tell? Is this something that you want to make money on? Or is this something that you want to be a resume piece to get you your next job? And depending on the answers to those questions, I'm able to tell them how they should approach the project in terms of how to finance it, how to do it. You know, if it's a passion project, then make it for the smallest amount of money that you can make it for. If it's a resume piece, get the best equipment that you can get and make it, you know, the, maybe the shortest amount to show your the biggest amount of scope. And if you want to make money, then find something sort of marketable like a horror film and make that. And I think that you can look, I think that you could apply some of that to all parts of your life. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Terrific. I'll come back. I'm writing a book, so I'll come <gasps> back and talk to you about my book in six months maybe. Give us a it's about preview. It's about producing because I just don't think people really understand how, and I've produced five projects now, and they're all, they're so different just to see the different experiences that, and the industry's changed even since 1993. Oh, great. I can't wait. Thank you. You're welcome. Very much. Thank you. Okay. 
To learn more about Colleen, you can visit our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. There you'll find links to Colleen's bio as well as links to An Acceptable Loss, which you can rent or download anywhere that you stream your movies. It's terrific and we highly recommend it. Also, a big thank you to the producers of An Acceptable Loss, Corrado Mooncoin, Colleen Griffin and Joe Chappelle, as well as Candy Strait, for their support of She Said, She Said, and for helping to make this series of conversations possible. We also greatly appreciate their support overall of thinking broadly, like She Said, She Said, about women leading and having an impact and their willingness to challenge norms and assumptions. 